0: You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Hello and welcome to the Black Experience Hour, a 60-minute weekly program bringing you articles from a variety of sources, This one's being recorded on the 23rd of September for the listening week that begins the 24th. Your reader's name is Susan Shirey. First up, we have this article from AP Press. Buttigieg Awards Grant to Tear Down Divisive Detroit Highway. This is written by Hope Yen. It was posted September 15th. Dateline Washington from AP Press. A long-delayed plan to dismantle Interstate 375, a one-mile, depressed freeway in Detroit that was built by demolishing black neighborhoods 60 years ago, was a big winner of federal money Thursday, the first Biden administration grant awarded to tear down a racially divisive roadway. The $104.6 million is among $1.5 billion in transportation grants handed out to 26 projects nationwide, thanks to increased funding from a 2021 bipartisan infrastructure law. It allows Michigan to move forward on its $270 million effort to transform the stretch in Detroit into a street-level boulevard reconnecting surrounding neighborhoods and adding amenities such as bike lanes. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg has said he would make racial justice a priority in his department's funding awards, pledging wide-ranging help to communities. Black Bottom and Paradise Valley, two of the city's predominantly African-American neighborhoods, were raised as part of the 1950s creation of an interstate highway system, displacing 100,000 black residents and directing a decades-long barrier between the downtown and the communities to the east. Hailed by city and state leaders as helping to rectify a past racial wrong, the federal money represents a key first step that advocacy groups say will inspire dozens of citizen-led efforts underway in other cities to dismantle highways. Still, advocates cautioned that Michigan's plan to build a six-lane city boulevard risks simply replacing one busy roadway with another some longtime black residents, meanwhile, worry they could be priced out of the city by new business development and shiny condo buildings that promise direct links to downtown. After years of planning dating back to 2013, the highway removal is now estimated to begin as soon as 2025, which is two years earlier than expected, with construction finishing by 2028. This stretch of I-375 cuts like a gash through the neighborhood, one of many examples I have seen in communities across the country where a piece of infrastructure has become a barrier, Buttigieg told the Associated Press. He joined Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer and Detroit Mayor Mike Duggan later Thursday in Detroit, along with several black residents, to highlight the grant. He said, with these funds we're now partnering with the state and the community to transform it into a road that will connect rather than divide. Other winners pardon me, other winners Thursday of the infrastructure for rebuilding America goes by infra grants include thirty two point five million dollars for Flagstaff Arizona to build pedestrian underpasses to reconnect lower income neighborhoods isolated by one-mile segment of railroad to downtown, and $100 million to Clear Creek County in Colorado for upgrades to eight miles of the I-70 Mountain Corridor, including electric vehicle charging stations, $110 million to New York to expand refrigerated warehouse space at its Hunts Point Food Distribution Center, and $70 million to improve rail track in Chicago. Detroit's project would create a slower speed boulevard that aims to improve safety by removing a steep curve and adding LED lighting, while removing 15 old bridges and two storm water runoff pump stations and building out wider sidewalks, protected bike lanes, and pedestrian crossings. Whitmer had originally sought as much as $180 million in federal money for this project because that would have been a tall order under the Biden administration's program Reconnecting Communities, which was funded by Congress for $1 billion over five years. Buttigieg's Department of Transportation opted to award the $104 million to Michigan under the federal INFRA discretionary grant program, which has a bigger total pot of $8 billion over five years. Christopher Koss, Assistant Secretary for Transportation Policy, said the Detroit grant reflected Buttigieg's pledge to make reconnecting communities a broad principle of his department, not just a single program, with many efforts underway. Ben Crowther, an advocacy manager for America Walks, and coordinator for the Freeway Fighters Network, praised the new federal grant. While there are over 50 grassroots efforts around the country aimed at removing or repurposing highways, only three cities, Detroit, Syracuse, New York, and Somerville, Massachusetts, have demolition plans that are shovel-ready making them prime candidates for federal funding. Oh, pardon me, that's Detroit, Syracuse, New York, and Somerville, Massachusetts. I misread that. The fact the Detroit project is now moving forward really speaks to the priorities that USDOT has set for reconnecting communities that are trickling down to the state level, said Crowther. While community debate will likely continue over the best design and whether a six-lane boulevard is a good approach, he said, the new federal focus on equity is a lot of inspiration for local groups for that reason alone, he said. Still, some black residents worry the new boulevard could only create more problems. Sam Riddle, political director of the Michigan National Action Network, said, oh, pardon me, And a longtime resident of that area says, to truly address racial inequity, city officials need to take a more holistic approach to improving black livelihood, such as building affordable housing. He said, they're not going to right an historical wrong where black businesses were wiped out. What they're going to do is repeat the same mistake that prices out majority black Detroit. Detroit. Next, um, there's certainly been a lot of news about the recent death of Queen Elizabeth. And here we have an article from the New York Times titled, In Africa, the Queen's Death Renews a Debate About the Legacy of the British Empire. This was posted September 9th, and three authors, Abdi Latif Dahir, Lindsay Chuttle, and Elian Peltier line, Nairobi, Kenya. Though Queen Elizabeth II was revered by many in Africa, her death also reignited a different sort of conversation, one that touched on the legacy of the British Empire and the brutality the monarchy meted out to people in its former colonies. In a younger, generations of, pardon me, in a younger generation of Africans growing up in a post-colonial world, Some lamented that the Queen never faced up to the grim aftermath of colonialism and empire, or issued an official apology. They said they wanted to use the moment to recall the oppression and horrors their parents and grandparents endured in the name of the crown, and to urge for the return of crown jewels, rare massive diamonds taken from the continent. You can look at the monarchy from the point of view of high tea and nice outfits and charity, said Alice Mugo, a 34-year-old lawyer in the Kenyan capital, Nairobi. But there's also the ugly side, and for you to ignore the ugly side is dishonest. Miss Mugo said she recently found her grandmother's movement pass issued when the British colonial government in Kenya declared a state of emergency to help suppress the anti-colonial Mau Mau rebellion, the passes restricted the free movement of Kenyans. It was while a young Elizabeth was on an official tour of Kenya in 1952 that she learned of her father's death and that she would become queen. The clampdown on Kenyans, which began just months after the queen ascended the throne, led to the establishment of a vast system of detention camps and the torture, rape, castration, and killing of tens of thousands of people. Those mourning the Queen's death, said Ms. Mugo, were not aware of how her government robbed millions of basic freedoms. Similar sentiments were echoed by a South African political party, Economic Freedom Fighters, which said in a statement that it would not mourn the Queen, quote, because to us her death is a reminder of a very tragic period in this country and Africa's history. The Queen, they wrote, was the head of an institution built up, sustained, and living off a brutal legacy of dehumanization of millions of people across the world. The debate over how Africans should view the Queen went viral when Uji Anya, a Nigerian-born professor at Carnegie Mellon University posted a tweet in which she wished the Queen excruciating pain on her deathbed for overseeing a thieving, raping, genocidal empire. Quotes. When criticism came, including from her own university and Jeff Bezos, the billionaire founder of Amazon, Miss Anya doubled down, saying, if anyone expects me to express anything but disdain for the monarch, you can keep wishing upon a star. Her original tweet was removed by Twitter for violating the platform's rules. For some, across the continent, the Queen was an admirable figure who represented continuity and balance in a changing world. In Ghana, tributes for Ma Lizzie were shared on Twitter. I grew to admire her over the years, just watching how she carried herself and her commitment to what she committed to at 25, said Yemi Adamolakun, the executive director of Enough is Enough Nigeria, a network of organizations promoting good governance, he said. She just kept at it, and I think there's a lot to be admired in that regard." African leaders mourned the queen's passing and offered condolences to Britain and her family. The presidents of Kenya and Ghana also ordered that flags be flown at half staff for several days, drawing pushback on social media. Muhammad, oh, pardon me, Muhammadu Buhura, Buharu, oh, I'm going to try that again. Muhammadu Buhari, Nigeria's president wrote on Twitter that the story of modern Nigeria will never be complete without a chapter on Queen Elizabeth II, a towering global personality and an outstanding leader. William Ruto, Kenya's president-elect, called the Queen's leadership of the Commonwealth admirable. The association, which was born out of the embers of the British Empire, but has lost much of its earlier glory, has still attracted new members like Rwanda, Gabon, and Togo—the Commonwealth, I think—which have had no colonial connections to Britain. For 27-year-old Naledi Mashishi, whose South African grandmother was forced to sing the God Save the Queen anthem each day at school, Queen Elizabeth will forever remain the face of the empire and its bitter legacy in Africa. In the wake of the Queen's death, Miss Mashishi joined a legion of young South Africans demanding the return of the diamonds that were formed, that do form part of the crown jewels. Cut from the Cullinan, which was discovered in South Africa in 1905, and considered to be the largest diamond ever found, the rare gemstones sit atop the Imperial State Crown and the Sovereign Scepter. Which are both used during the coronation of the British monarch. The stone was a gift from the Afrikaner government to King Edward VII after the South African War, also known as the Anglo-Boer War. But South Africa—pardon me—but Black South Africans have questioned a minority government's right to bestow a gift of the gem uncovered during a time of brutal exploitation of Black people. On her twenty-first birthday in 1947, the Queen made a speech from a still segregated Cape Town, pledging her service to the Commonwealth. I think there's something very disingenuous about saying the Queen or the current royal, pardon me, current royal family, have nothing to do with the past," said Missus Mash- Mashishi. Meanwhile, they are still happily wearing those stolen jewels. But with the Queen's passing, observers say that tough conversations about the Empire's past actions in Africa will only continue to gain steam. It's way more than the diamonds, said Lebohang Peko, a political economist and a senior researcher at the South African think tank Trade Collective. There are not going to be easy conversations around this anymore, he said. And another kind of royalty. Still reading this one from the New York Times. It was published August 25th and updated. September 13th, it says, Before Serena, there was Althea. Althea Gibson was the first black player to win Wimbledon. Soon, the block in Harlem where she grew up will bear her name. This is written by Sally H. Jacobs. On a sweltering day in the summer of 1957, a slender young woman from Harlem became the first black player to win the hallowed Wimbledon Tennis Tournament in England. After receiving the Venus Rosewater Dish from Queen Elizabeth II, Althea Gibson, 29, attended the Wimbledon Ball that evening, spinning around the dance floor in the arms of the Duke of Devonshire. The celebration continued in Manhattan, where Miss Gibson was feted with the first ticker-tape parade up Broadway to honor a woman of color. feted. pardon me. But the following day, the illusion that the new Queen of Tennis had ushered in a chapter of racial equity was shattered. When Miss Gibson arrived in a Chicago suburb for her next tournament, she was refused a room at all of the upscale hotels, one of which also rejected a request to book a, lux- a luncheon Pardon me, in her honor. Midnight had come for Cinderella, not in some small Mississippi town, but in liberal greater Chicago, a reporter wrote in a Saturday Review magazine. Back in London, the fairy tale disappeared overnight. Lou Hode, the Wimbledon men's single champion, who had danced with Miss Gibson at the ball, awoke the next morning to a pile of angry messages, according to his widow, Jenny Hode, There were just hundreds of letters from people who accused him of breaking the rules, saying, "'You have no right to dance with colored people,' she recalled. "'We didn't even read most of them,' she said. But Miss Gibson had no intention of letting the discrimination she had battled for most of her life stop her rise and imminent reign. Two months later, she became the first black tennis player to win the tournament now known as the U.S. Open." and by the end of the year she had become the first black woman to be ranked number one in the world. Her fortitude and perseverance paved the way for the black tennis players to to come after her, like Arthur Ashe, Zena Garrison, and the Williams sisters. Although largely overlooked, after the 1950s, Miss Gibson is at long last starting to get her due. On Thursday, which would have been her 95th birthday, the block of 143rd Street in Harlem, where she first held a racket, will be renamed Althea Gibson Way. A life-size statue of a teenage Althea, intended to be erected near the block, is currently in the making. Later that day, Miss Gibson will be honored in a program at the Billie Jean King National Tennis Center in Flushing Meadows, Corona Park, Queens, home of the U.S. Open. As the tournament begins its 142nd consecutive year the event called Divine 9 is a celebration of fraternities and sororities at historically black colleges and universities Miss Gibson attended Florida A&M Next year the West Side Tennis Club in Forest Hills Queens the former home of the US Open where Miss Gibson braved racist taunts in her first appearance in the majors plans to honor her at its stadium centennial. There's also the possibility of a quarter bearing her likeness in 2025. All the recognition might come across as cold comfort to Miss Gibson, according to Michael Jan Grand, whose father was an executive at the sporting goods store that provided her with free rackets. Mr. Jan Grand, who is scheduled to speak at the street renaming, remembers Miss Gibson lamenting that her trophies were the only things of value she got out of tennis, which at the time did not offer cash purses. He said, she and my dad often joked about it, calling the trophies ten cups. Everyone was making money off the sport except for the players. To understand how much that has changed, consider Serena Williams. The second black woman to win the Grand Slam singles title, Ms. Williams would go on to win 22 more, becoming the most decorated athlete, male or female, to play competitive tennis in the past 20 years. As such, she has also become a top earner, with a current net worth of $260 million. When Ms. Williams recently announced her probable retirement following this year's U.S. Open, she had already started a professional pivot, involving venture capital, among other projects. Miss Gibson, on the other hand, left tennis only to struggle financially for most of her life, making ends meet by touring with the Harlem Globetrotters and working as a community representative for a national baking company, at times dabbling in acting and singing, until her death in 2003 both serena and venus williams are known admirers of miss gibson in 1999 serena who was pardon me, serena who was then 17 faxed miss gibson a list of questions in connection with a school project and the sisters used a photo of miss gibson on the back cover of a black history newsletter that they created miss gibson struggled with poverty for most of her life a part of the great migration Her family left South Carolina in 1929. She arrived in Harlem as a toddler months before the stock market crashed. Making matters worse, her family wound up on 143rd Street, which bordered what was then known as the Lung Block, because the death rate from tuberculosis among residents there was twice that of other Manhattan neighborhoods, according to the 1939 New York City Guide. Claude Brown, Miss Gibson's first cousin, and the author of the best-selling autobiographical novel Man-Child in the Promised Land, also grew up in Harlem, surrounded by alcoholism and street violence, which he wrote about in the book. By age nine, the protagonist of Man-Child had been, quote, hit by a bus, thrown into the Harlem River intentionally, hit by a car, "'severely beaten with a chain, and had set the house on fire. "'Miss Gibson was no stranger to such hardships. "'Pardon me, a towering girl from her earliest days. "'She spent much of her time on the street, "'shoplifting and fighting with street gangs. "'Her father, Daniel Gibson, a garage worker, "'hoped that his daughter would become a competitive boxer, "'and regularly took her to the rooftop of their building for training.' But when his lessons sometimes turned into beatings, she headed to the New York Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children, as she wrote in her autobiography, which gave her shelter. Another haven for Althea was the Apollo Theater. She loved to sing and play the saxophone, and routinely played hooky to attend the performances there. In 1943, she won second prize in a vocal competition on the Apollo stage. But instead of a week of singing engagements there, which she had been promised, Althea was awarded a prize of $10. I couldn't complain, Miss Gibson wrote in her autobiography, that $10 bought a mess of fried chicken, collard greens, and root beer. For Althea, competition was a way of life. She took to just about any sport involving a ball. Basketball was one of her favorites, and she was the fastest member of the Mysterious Girls Athletic Club, the prize-winning Harlem basketball team. Once, she and her teammates ran into the champion boxer Sugar Ray Robinson in a bowling alley, and she promptly challenged him, declaring, I can beat you at bowling right now. In 1937, when the Police Athletic League cordoned off 143rd Street to provide a safe play space for children, Althea Ten discovered paddle tennis. Two years later, she became the city's paddle tennis champion. Not long after that, Buddy Walker, a Harlem band leader and a supervisor for the league, bought Miss Gibson a pair of used tennis rackets. By her own account, Miss Gibson did not originally feel like tennis would be a natural fit for her. I remember thinking to myself that it was kind of like a matador going into the bull ring, pardon me, the bull ring, Beautifully dressed, bowing in all directions, she wrote in her autobiography, and all the time having nothing in mind except sticking that sword into the bull's guts and killing him dead as hell. Mr. Walker also introduced her to the Cosmopolitan Club, the local black tennis club, where most of pardon me, where the most prosperous Harlem residents played. Soon she was beating every one she played. Club members took up a collection and sent her to tournaments around the country sponsored by the American Tennis Association, a league for black players. By 1947, at the age of 20, Miss Gibson won her first ATA title and went on to win ten national championships, a record that still stands. Bob Davis, one of Miss Gibson's hitting partners, remembers that she was so aggressive on the court that just rallying with her could be intimidating. Althea was a tough girl, recalled Mr. Davis, himself a four time champion. She would be perfectly happy to knock you down with the ball. She did hit me. Every time we played, she would try and hit me. Miss Gibson smashed and lobbed her way to the top ranks of tennis, breaking the color barrier to the sport in 1950 when she became the first black person to compete in the U.S. Open. By the decade's end, She had amassed a total of 11 Grand Slam titles, including multiple championships at Wimbledon, the U.S. Open, and the French Open, where, in 1956, she won titles in both singles and doubles. But for Miss Gibson, that wasn't enough. As soon as she retired from tennis, she jumped into another sport, and in 1964 became the first black woman to join the Ladies' Professional Golf Association. Everything Althea had to do was three times harder than it was for a non-person of color, said Katrina, pardon me, Katrina Adams, a former professional tennis player and the first black person to serve as the president of the USTA. She also added, for me, what she did was transcendent. Our next few articles will continue to be from the New York Times race-related um, newsletter. This next one was posted September 12th, written by Shayla Martin, A Journey Through Black Nova Scotia. The 400-year history of African culture in this maritime Canadian province is expansive, but its story has been tucked into the shadows of Canadian history. Now, grassroots initiatives are changing that. There's a photo accompanying this article at the top with um, some brick columns attached to two small iron gates, and the caption says A burial ground for black loyalists in Birchtown, Nova Scotia. Thousands of free and enslaved Africans known as black loyalists fought during the American Revolution on the side of the British, but Once British defeat seemed inevitable, more than 3,000 loyalists departed New York for Nova Scotia. Whenever I travel and tell people where I'm from, they always say, There are black people in Nova Scotia? said Renée Boudreau, 30, and founder of Elevate and Explore Black Nova Scotia, a travel community and experiential business designed to inspire black travelers to visit the province. They're always surprised when I'm like, we've been here for 400 years. As a black American who's developed a near obsession with the African diaspora, I'll admit that I would have asked her the same question had we met under different circumstances. Though the 400-year history of African culture in the Maritime Province of Nova Scotia is one that is rich and expansive, it's a story that's been tucked into the shadows of Canadian history and not widely acknowledged for its contributions to the African diaspora. Thanks to a collection of grassroots tourism initiatives in the province, the narrative is shifting. Ms. Boudreau said that the lack of black representation within Nova Scotia's tourism industry is what inspired her to launch business her business in December 2019. Born and raised in Truro in central Nova Scotia, but with familial ties to the historically black communities of Shelburne in southwestern Nova Scotia and our Africville, a neighborhood on the outskirts of Halifax, she noticed that among her own friends and family there were many places in Nova Scotia they'd never visited to explore their own history. Pandemic-related travel restrictions forced her to reevaluate her target audience. Pardon me, her target audience. I realized it's the people, the local people here, that have yet to experience a lot of these cultural sites in their own city. She told me over coffee in Halifax. When you don't see yourself represented somewhere, you're not going to think that place will be welcoming to you. A complicated relationship. Truth be told. I had a hard time imagining Canada, and Nova Scotia in particular, as unwelcoming to anyone. The sea-swept peninsula, dotted with charming lighthouses, seemed downright idyllic, not to mention the fact that it's home to the 40-plus stop Nova Scotia Lobster Trail, celebrating my shellfish of choice. I developed a curiosity about black Nova Scotian history back in the early in early 19, pardon me, in early 2020, after reading a Savour piece about the African roots of Nova Scotia cuisine. After monitoring the Canadian pandemic border closure for more than two years, I finally booked my ticket to explore the province this summer. I stayed in an Airbnb on John Street in the north end of Halifax, a trendy neighborhood filled with colorfully painted row houses, restaurants and local boutiques. Boutiques. Halifax is situated on a peninsula jutting into the Atlantic Ocean, and its main draw is the Halifax waterfront and almost 2.5 mile long boardwalk where you'll find the Halifax Seaport Farmers Market, the Canadian Museum of Immigration at Pier 21, and harbor Sales with J. Farewell sail, sailing tours. For some black Americans, Canada seems like a bit of a promised land after the 2016 election, and they weren't alone. The Canadian government's immigration website crashed on election night because of a significant increase in traffic and moved to Canada remaining among the top trending Google search topics the following day but I'd be remiss to believe that Nova Scotia's relationship with its black population has been a love story. The first recorded black person to arrive in Canada was an African by the name of Matthew de Costa, who came to Nova Scotia sometimes between 1605 and 1608 to serve as an interpreter for the French colonizers Pierre Duguay de Gouin de pardon my mispronunciation, and some Samuel de Champlain. Over the last four centuries, the province has been home to more than 50 black communities. One of the most significant waves of black migration took place between 1783 and 1785 during the American Revolution. Thousands of free and enslaved Africans known as black loyalists fought during the war on the side of the British with the promise of freedom and land, seemingly within their grasp, but once British defeat seemed inevitable more than 3,000 Black Loyalists departed New York for Nova Scotia. Their journey is honored at the Black Loyalist Heritage Center in Shelburne, a roughly 2.5 hour drive from Halifax, past pine-dotted hills and freshwater lakes. The natural light-filled ultra-modern museum and education center rests on the site of the former community of Birchtown, the largest settlement of free blacks in the world, outside of Africa in 1783. The complex includes the Birchtown schoolhouse from the 1830s, St. Paul's Church, and an African burial ground. As I walked toward the Heritage Center, I noticed metal ribbons of text installed along the stone walls. A yellow ribbon stated, Is this the place? Birchtown, haven of freedom? A brown ribbon, seemingly in response, stated, This is the place, our harbor of hope. The ribbons continued inside along the curved museum walls where Braden Chetwind, the program and outreach coordinator for the Center, informed me that the words on the ribbons represented an imagined conversation between the Black Loyalists and their descendants. Audio devices throughout the museum allow guests to listen as voice actors portraying the Black Loyalists share their experiences leaving everything they had known in search of a new life. The Book of Negroes The Black Loyalist Heritage Center opened in 2015 after the original building was lost in a racially motivated arson attack, pardon me, in 2006. At every vantage point in the new space, guests will see the names of each loyalist etched into the windows, walls, and even the floor, names that we now know today thanks to the, quote, book of Negroes. The 150-page document created by Brigadier General Samuel Birch detailed the name, physical description, and legal status of each person of African descent who fled the United States to Nova Scotia after the war. A fictionalized version of the book and its subsequent journey was immortalized by the Canadian novelist Lawrence Hill in his 2007 novel, The Book of Negroes, which was published in the United States as Someone Knows My Name. And again, in 2015, a mini-series, co-developed by CBC and BET Networks. One version of the original document resides in England at the National Archives in Kew, London, and another at the National Archives in Washington, D.C. Museum guests can swipe through a virtual copy of Book of Negroes and follow a digital timeline wall with four touchscreen presentations that detail Black Loyalist history from capture in Africa, hardships and broken promises upon arrival in Birchtown, a mass exodus of nearly 1,200 Black Loyalists to Sierra Leone in 1792, and finally the legacy and impact of their experiences in the present day. I felt conflicting emotions at the center I had a shared sense of pride that the names and stories of these 3,000-plus ancestors were known and could be celebrated by black Canadians today. Yet, I was jealous that for so many Americans like myself, we will never know the names of our ancestors. It felt like yet another distinct cruelty of American slavery, where names were infrequently recorded, usually only as property records, if at all. Here, visitors are encouraged to search for the names of their ancestors and learn what became of them after arriving in Nova Scotia. With advance notice, the Black Loyalist Heritage Society staff members offer genealogical research services to the public, a service that members themselves have utilized. This is a document that shows the history of my lineage and a breakdown of all the generations, said Andrea Davis. 56, the executive director of the Black Loyalist Heritage Center. As she slid a stack of pages across her desk toward me, the document charted nine generations of her family tracing her roots back to a free Black Loyalist who arrived in Nova Scotia in 1783. Named executive director in July 2022, Miss Davis believes that a return to her hometown of Shelburne from Toronto is answering a call from her ancestors. There was no focus on black culture or understanding in the education system during my upbringing, and sometimes even the families chose not to tell us their stories," she said. My ancestors brought me back here, and I believe I've been touched by them to tell our story. But I'm not just focused on the past. I'm here to bring us into the future and bring some of this education to our schools. On the way back to Halifax, I stopped in Old Town Lunenburg, one of two urban communities in North America designated as a UNESCO World Heritage Site. The coastal fishing town is a dream for Scandinavian design lovers with brightly painted A-frame galleries, breweries, and the Fisheries Museum of the Atlantic along the waterfront. While Lunenburg was admittedly beautiful, I was starving and exhausted by all that I had learned that day. I made my way straight to the Grand Banker Bar and Grill in search of the famed Linenburger, Burger, a local beef burger topped with smoked mozzarella and bacon, spinach, garlic aioli, and Nova Scotia lobster meat, then speared with a bacon-wrapped scallop. It was love at first bite. Celebrating Black Identity The desire to celebrate black identity seems to have surged in Nova Scotia, as it did in so many places in the wake of the murder of George Floyd in June of 2020. Though Miss Boudreau began her business well before that tragedy, the black culture-centered events and experiences she planned in late 2020 and beyond have been met by a demand she never expected. There really isn't much that's centered on the African Nova Scotian experience that's fun or immersive, said Miss Boudreaux. I knew there was a gap I could help to fill. In August twenty twenty, Elevate and Explore Black Nova Scotia partnered with iHeart Bikes to create a Black History Bike Tour that sold out in hours. A Black Excellent Boat cru- pardon me Black Excellence Boat Cruise on the Halifax Waterfront created in partnership with Changes Brewing Company, which is a craft brewery collective of black and indigenous industry professionals, and a Black Joy-themed wine tour held in partnership with Nova Scotia Wine Tours, both sold out. The company recently held its second annual Black Excellence Boat Cruise and plans to host a Black Girls Ski Trip ice-skating excursion, and eventually exchange trips to cities around the world. For those unable to make an excursion, the website features a directory of black-owned restaurants, fashion and beauty brands, home decor, and Airbnb listings in Nova Scotia. The Pain and Pride of Africville After days spent exploring hope-centered sites, there was one cultural site in Nova Scotia that filled me with apprehension. The story of Africville, a small community of predominantly black Canadians on the edge of the sparkling Bedford Basin and its eventual destruction, is wrought with the pain of deceit and disenfranchisement. The original size of Africville ranged from 23 acres to 500 acres, depending on whom you ask. Today, it is a 2.5-acre dedicated site that includes a park with views of the graceful A. Murray McKay Suspension Bridge and a replica of Seaview African United Baptist Church, once the social heart of the community. The church building now houses the Africville Museum, which explores the history of the African Nova Scotian community that resided for more than 100 years there. Established in 1849, Africville was a close-knit, thriving community with a school, businesses, a post office, and of course the church. Though Africville was mostly self-sufficient, the city of Halifax refused to provide the many amenities normally taken for granted, like sewage, access to clean water and garbage disposal, even though residents paid city taxes. Over time, other initiatives were developed to make the neighborhood seem less desirable, including placing an infectious disease hospital, a prison, and the city dump nearby. Similar to the urban renewal policies of the 1950s and 60s in American cities, Halifax decided to relocate the residents of Africville in order to build commercial and industrial districts in the area. In 1964, the Halifax City Council voted to authorize the relocation of residents, though it was later reported that more than 80% of residents never had contact with the Halifax Human Rights Advisory Committee. The volunteer citizens group created to protect the interests of the people of Africa, Africville. The city claimed that relocation would improve the standard of living for residents, but most were moved into public housing complexes. Adding insult to injury, the belongings of residents were moved by city garbage trucks. Despite much resistance, the last home in Africville was destroyed in 1970, the city issued a formal apology to former residents in 2010. As I approached the sunny yellow church where the Africville Museum is housed and gazed at the calm waters of Bedford Basin, it was easy to imagine a community of children playing, families fishing, and folks gathering together after a church service. I noticed that the park behind the museum once briefly a dog park before Africville descendants expressed outrage in 2014, was filled with campers, tents, and RVs. After I viewed historic photographs, news segments, and protest memorabilia with an Africville descendant, Mark Carvery, whose grandfather was forcibly removed in his youth and to this day can't discuss the experience, Mr. Carvery casually mentioned that the coming weekend was the Africville Reunion. Now in its 39th year, the annual homecoming is celebrated at the end of July by former residents who park their campers where their homes would have been, cooking, singing, dancing, and reliving memories. I made my way into the camp, and immediately a woman so strikingly similar to my own auntie's waved me over to chat Forced from Africville at the age of fifteen and now in her late sixties, Paula Grant Smith took a deep sigh when recalling that traumatic experience. Growing up here was wonderful. If I fell and skinned my knee, I could go into any house, and they'd patch me right up, said Miss Grant Smith. If I needed a snack, I could go stop by my neighbors, and they'd feed me. I get very sad when I think about Africville especially as I get older, because we had so much freedom to play, but also felt protected. As she regaled me with memories of her childhood and past reunions, I felt that strange phenomena of how alike so many black communities are. Her description of Africville could have been my mother's black neighborhood in southwest Louisiana, or my father's in Montgomery, Alabama neighborhoods that have seen their share of destruction because of racist government policies, yet have somehow maintained a spirit of love, family, and hope. We have a saying, as Africville folk, the spirit lives on, said Miss Grant Smith, and when we come back here, the spirits of all of those folks that have gone on before us are right here with us. And... If that is an interest to you, um, the website for that museum is africvillemuseum.org, A-F-R-I-C-V-I-L-L-E, africvillemuseum.org. I'm going to turn now to theroot.com for a single article by Keith Reed, which was posted September 8th. If you're black or love CNN, here's why you must know who Bernard Shaw was. Without him, CNN and cable news may have never become what it did. And there's a photo of the man in his office with a caption, CNN anchor Bernard Shaw poses in his office at CNN's Washington Bureau on February 15, 2001, Shaw, who was CNN's original chief anchor when the network started in 1980, died of pneumonia in Washington on Wednesday, September seventh, according to Tom Johnson, the network's former chief executive. Shaw was 82. It might be hard for some folks today to imagine life before news was instantly available any time of day. But that time wasn't all that long ago. CNN, the world's first 24 hour news channel, launched in 1980, 42 years ago. People who grew up with the network for the most part haven't yet reached their 50s, which means the faces that built the network are also the ones who prepared the world for the deluge of constant information that was coming. And the one journalist whose face was most responsible for bringing the country into that new era was Bernard Shaw, who died yesterday at age 82, according to a statement from CNN. If you didn't know who Shaw was, if you were born too late to have ever heard his baritone giving you a live update on something important in the world, this is why you should know his name." Shaw was CNN's original Washington anchor and likely the first blackface viewers saw on the network after its launch. CNN itself was an innovation inside of an innovation. Cable systems had only been launched about a decade before, so most content wasn't siloed into categories like news, entertainment, or sports. Most people only had access to whatever local TV stations they were close enough to to get clear reception of. Whatever those stations were, they weren't giving you news or information about what was happening in the rest of the world on a consistent basis. At best, you got about a half hour of local gossip, followed by another half hour of network evening news. Put another way, throughout most of the Cold War, the Cuban Missile Crisis, the assassinations of JFK, RFK, MLK, and Malcolm X, the Vietnam War, and so forth, with rare exceptions, you got that news for a few minutes in the evening and then waited until the next day to hear more. And with the exception of ABC's Max Robinson, none of the faces that brought you those updates was a black one. For that reason... In 1980, Shaw wasn't just an original at CNN, but a pioneer. As CNN's lead anchor, his was most visible symbol of where television news was headed over the next several decades. I suppose that should read his face was the most visible symbol CNN's format would be copied over the years by networks like CNBC, MSNBC, and eventually Fox News. But in the early days, cable networks weren't particularly partisan, and Shaw's style of straight news reading was a model for journalists looking to make their way to a national stage as the cable news industry grew. At the same time, Black journalists weren't yet ubiquitous in most broadcast networks or in local markets, but Shaw was being beamed daily into tens of millions of homes and helming coverage of the biggest stories on any given day. Shaw remained CNN's top anchor for two decades, leading coverage of the first Gulf War and serving as the first moderator of presidential debates on the network. He retired in 2001, before the era of terrorism, hyperpartisanship, talking heads, and competition from the Internet and social media changed the business again. And 42 years after Bernard Shaw helped give cable news its start as an industry, still only one black man, CNN's Don Lemon, is a primetime anchor on any network. That brings me just about to the end of our time for this week. And thank you so much for joining us for the Black Experience Hour. AINC Programming is brought to you in part by the Broomfield Community Foundation, Broomfield's leading partner and voice for philanthropy since 1993. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.